Major depressive illness is nearly twice as common in women as in men. Are different treatment strategies necessary for women? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jill Warnock. Dr. Warnock is a professor of psychiatry, director of clinical research, and adjunct professor of internal medicine at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in Tulsa. Her research interests include psychiatric disorders in women and reproductive endocrinology. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. Happy to be here. So, Dr. Warnock, why is depression more common in women? Well, that's a very good question and something I've been studying for most of my academic life. Why do women suffer more depression? And it's twice as often. And that's not just in this culture, it's in other cultures as well. Again, some of it may be psychosocial, perhaps dual roles, playing mom and breadwinner, extra stressors. And women suffer more autoimmune disorders like thyroid disorders, which can look like depression and mimic depression. And also, I think there's a biological factors that under stress that women are more vulnerable. This is true in other studies with female rats, for example, that under stress, those rats become the equivalent of depressed where they might have their swimming, these little rats swim, and then when they become depressed, they just give up. And so that's kind of the rat model for depression. And so I do think that women who are more likely to be victims of sexual trauma um, or even PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, all of these stressors might leave them vulnerable. And in addition, the one area that I'm very interested in is where the sex steroids may play a role, where women's sex steroids fluctuate monthly. They fluctuate radically after the delivery of a baby, and then they again change in the perimenopause. And so three times at least when women are vulnerable are if you have premenstrual disorder, for example, where you have those symptoms of irritability and tension and anxiety right before your period, that's a risk factor for major depression because your sex steroids are fluctuating and some women are vulnerable to that. Again, the postpartum state and in the perimenopause, those are three areas where we know that women are definitely have an increase in vulnerability and that's an area of interest of mine where I think that that is one important reason that leaves them at this increased risk for major depression. So it sounds like the risk really varies depending on the age and the hormonal milieu. Absolutely. It's young women of reproductive age who are more likely to suffer depression. And again, I agree with you that the hormonal milieu is very important. I think of of an example of where it can impact the quality of their life. I was doing one study on uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and we were using a treatment and the woman was much better, and and so I'm being a good researcher. I'm also talking to the husband, and and how has this improved your life, sir? As as your wife's improved here on her premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and he says, well, what I think is great is we don't have to plan our family vacations any longer around her menstrual cycle. So, wow. you know, and premenstrual dysphoric disorder would have the same symptoms, for example, as major depression, but it doesn't meet that duration criteria. So major depression has these symptoms, but that has to be at least two weeks. But if you have premenstrual dysphoric disorder, for example, which is just in the late luteal phase, maybe just four to ten days perhaps, but if you add that over time for a young woman, that can add up to eight years 
of her life. And premenstrual dysphoric disorder tends to begin uh, in the 20s, gets worse in the 30s, and then worse in the 40s. And that's when they generally present is in the 30s or 40s for their premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, that is a risk factor for major depression, just even having that milder form. We call that kind of kindling because each time your brain maybe goes through this this difficult time, it may become more vulnerable for another premenstrual event, which in turn can lead them uh, more vulnerable. It's a risk factor for developing major depression. A common problem that many of us face in the clinic is the perimenopausal women that have depression. And I just gave a lecture last week, and that was the question. Okay, do you start with HRT, hormone replacement therapy, or antidepressants, and why? Again, you have to titrate that, you know, make a clinical judgment for each individual. But if the woman doesn't smoke and doesn't have any uh, history of any blood dysgrasia or blood clots, has had a history of premenstrual dysphoric disorder or major depression, that can impact you one way or the other. If they've had severe depression in the past and meet criteria for major depression, I might be more likely to use an antidepressant. If they just have depressive symptoms, then I may be more likely to use HRT if they also have vaginal dryness, really memory complaints, because that often occurs with the estrogen decline in estrogen. Those memory complaints become more severe and hot flushes, as well as those depressive symptoms. I might use more HRT if it's like on that spectrum. I hope I said that right. If they have vaginal dryness, hot flushes, as well as depressive symptoms that maybe don't meet criteria. Now, on the other hand, if they certainly have a history of major depression or several episodes of major depression, I might go ahead and use an antidepressant for them. And knowing that some antidepressants really do help with hot flushes, as you probably know. Venlafaxine, for example, or paroxetine or sertraline have been used. They're not as good as estrogen in stopping the hot flushes, but they can be very, very helpful. And hot flushes are not something to ignore or to put up with. I trained at Washington University in St. Louis, and Stanley Burge was there, and once I was at a meeting with him, and he sees hot flushes as neurotoxic events. So he doesn't see that as something to just be ignored or put up with or tolerated. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jill Warnock. We are discussing mood disorders in women. Now, Jill, switching the subject just a bit, more and more primary care providers are treating bipolar disorder. What about that? Is this more common in women? No. Bipolar disorder is pretty equal in terms of the ratio of men to women. Uh, There is a one subtype of bipolar, bipolar 2. Some people describe it as a milder, but it's really not a milder form. In in a sense, it is that they have uh, hypomanic events with depressive episodes. Those women might have a little bit more bipolar 2, but for the majority, most uh, epidemiologists in psychiatric epidemiologists would see bipolar as equal in men and women. Are there any hormonal issues, um, despite the epidemiology, that we need to be concerned of when treating our bipolar female patients? I think so, <laughs> but I don't think everybody else does um, because I do see the hormonal milieu because I'm looking for it all the time affect my bipolar patients. They can be worse sometimes not always, but can have a worsening of symptoms right before their menstrual period if they're young women of reproductive age. Just like we can see depression, if women have 
depression with an exacerbation in the late luteal phase, as we would call it, where they, their depression is generally pretty well treated, but it just seems to break through. And then we might titrate up their antidepressants just for a few days. That's how I might do it. If those who have TMDD just uh, to kind of treat that premenstrual dysphoric disorder in the depressed patients. I will also do that in patients who are vulnerable with bipolar. And so say that they're on 900 of lithium, say 300, you know, TID, but they notice a breakthrough, I might up their lithium just a little bit in that late luteal phase and to help manage their symptoms a little better. Again, you try to titrate to each individual. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certain hormones, too, that I find that are very destabilizing. For example, the progestins, like the medroxyprogesterone acetate, can be very, very mood destabilizing. So I kind of like to have the hormonal milieu more stable. So if there's a, a young woman of reproductive age, I might place them on birth control pills in order to help them stabilize their mood. And I would keep them on it and not have that placebo time because then sometimes during the placebo pills, when they're on birth control pills, they can have a breakthrough there because they have, again, that decline in estrogen, which might leave some women more vulnerable. Now, what about in terms of women of childbearing years? Do you think about that when you choose a medicine to treat their bipolar disorder? You do because bipolar women can be impulsive and so then they can get pregnant. Obviously, we want to talk about birth control at the very beginning of our evaluation and and with their significant other, if possible. And some of the mood stabilizers can have teratogenic effects, but I still think you should use the medication that's best for that particular patient to stabilize their bipolar, uh, and that should be the primary decision, although you need to consider obviously, that they could get pregnant and educate them and warn them about that and talk to them about birth control pills and condoms and all of those kinds of issues. Any other issues when thinking about mood disorders in women in particular? Again, I think titrating to each individual. I would like to mention maybe about the postpartum depression, how women are very vulnerable there. In the dsm 4 it's only the modifier is postpartum depression if it only occurs within the first four weeks after the delivery of the baby. And that, I think, is really an underestimation of the frequency because I really think women are vulnerable for a much longer period of time for major depression after the delivery of a baby. Don't forget that if they are nursing, their prolactins could be up, their estrogens will stay down. And if there's someone who kind of needs that estrogen, because estrogen kind of does work like a mild antidepressant, helps with a lot of the neurotransmitters that our antidepressants do, certainly not as strong as some of the antidepressants, but certainly in a beneficial way can help like an antidepressant. I think that women in a postpartum state can be vulnerable for really several months and months, maybe even at least six months, maybe even nine months after the delivery of a baby. And the pediatricians may pick up on this when the mom brings the baby in for their checkups, and pediatricians often do a great job of assessing that, and they can tell sometimes that the mom's not interacting with that baby as well as they should, and I want to plead with the pediatricians that if you do see that, because 
it's about 20% of women will have a lifetime prevalence of major depression. So that's pretty common. And it's one of the leading causes of disability worldwide is major depression. And I think it's really been underappreciated of how that can impact, again, the whole family. So I'm pleading with the um, pediatricians. Obstetricians can do a pretty good job of picking it up too, but they usually just see the woman maybe one or two times after the delivery of the baby, maybe at six weeks one time, and that's that. So it's the pediatrician then who might pick up on that postpartum depression that lasts or that woman is vulnerable for that prolonged period of time. Excellent point. Well, thank you so much, Jill, for being on the show today. My pleasure. We've been discussing treating mood disorders in women with Dr. Jill Warnock. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.